Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the final and festive episode of the PD Podcast for 2020. I can't actually believe this is the 29th podcast episode we've released this year. And I thanks everyone for all their support and listeners um, for tuning in. We've had some amazing guests from around the world talking about not only their careers in pediatric orthopedics, but their opinions on training, research and how to maintain a healthy work-life balance. The Corona cast obviously explored numerous facets with regards to how the pandemic was affecting our practice and we went on this for 15 episodes. I'm very happy to say that we've had over 6,100 downloads of this podcast and we continue to attain new listeners. I hope you'll continue to share it uh, amongst your friends, colleagues and family and contact us on social media platforms including Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram. This festive episode of the PD Podcast, or episode 14, you're all in for a real treat. I sit down with Mr. Fergal Monsell, who's a paediatric orthopaedic and limb reconstruction surgeon from Bristol Children's Hospital. We talk about his career from medical school to surgical training to his fellowship to attaining a PhD and translating his research into clinical practice. We talk about his involvement in education, especially as the Biscos Educational Chair, and his association with the BOA Council and with the Children's Surgical Centre out in Cambodia. I hope you enjoy the episode. Let's get into it. Well, first things first, Miss Monsell, I'm so glad that you've given me the opportunity to sit with you for an episode of the PD Podcast. I know we sat together uh, for the closing episodes of the Coronacast uh, earlier this year. And to be honest, when I was thinking about a festive episode, I was thinking of someone who's jolly, influential and liked by kids and parents alike and I could only think of you when it came down to uh, fitting that criteria so thank you for speaking to me uh, about about your career and what's brought you to where you are today you're very well so tell me a bit about your upbringing um, I know you were born in Dublin and yeah. then you uh, emigrated across uh, to England tell me a bit about your upbringing your family background and sort of your education and how you ended up becoming a doctor to start with um, so I was, um, I arrived in England in 1966, I was six years old. Um, it's a long story. I think that the, the way that you would describe it is my parents saw better opportunities in the UK for, the, I'm one of five kids. And so they were economic migrants, which uh, yeah, had different connotations at the time, but was exactly that. So we were shipped over here probably to get, to get educated, and so I um, I pitched up in a in a primary school in in Kent in the Midway Towns as a six year old, and um, from there went to local grammar school, and uh, I always <laughs> there's two things I had this I had this unshakable belief that I was going to do medicine although I didn't know what it was, but I wasn't a particularly good student. And so I, I, I did, that didn't really um, help me too much. So, so I, 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 I reset A-levels and I um, went to Cardiff University to study medicine. And you can, whichever version you want, but basically that's the offer I got. So I was very delighted with it. And it was, looking back, it's, it had a fairly great influence on me 
uh, my direction of travel mainly socially but it was a, it was a, it was a it was a break that I needed as a as an 18 year old 19 year old um, they say yeah we all we all um, construct usable pasts but that's pretty much the unadulterated version of mine and I know that you sort of said that you were a bad student, but you know you graduated with distinction from Cardiff. No, 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 no. You didn't read it, man. You didn't read. You didn't read it. What I wrote down on one of my bios is I graduated without distinction. <laughs> if you read it carefully, it says graduated without distinction, because I was um, I was a very enthusiastic medical student, but I came into the sort of the um, the academic side of it rather late and just in time. And I think I was a much better postgraduate student than an undergraduate student. But in one of my bios, which I still smile about, I wrote down that I graduated without distinction. So then tell me what made you get into orthopedics? What, what attracted you to the specialty? And, well, and how I, I, I knew I wanted to do surgery. That was without, you know, that's, that's why I went into medical school. It's something you, 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 you decide for yourself before you have any idea what it means in practical terms. But that's what I wanted to do. Um, and luckily, it suits me whatever, you know, it suits me perfectly. But um, so surgery it was. So I, after house jobs, I did uh, what was then called casualty because that was a conventional way through. And um, then I did a variety of uh, surgical jobs at a SHO level. I did vascular surgery, urology. Um, I did cardiac surgery. Um, and general surgery. I did general surgery for a, a year and a half, two years. And um, then at that point, then you do the exams. Then I did Perry, Perry Fellowship um, rotation, did orthopedics. And then I knew that this was whatever it was that was in it. It was something that was very attractive to me. And so I decided as a, what would now be a sort of, you know, three years, four years post med school that that's what I wanted to do and everything else is pretty much in a straight line and this is before you had rotations you did a six-month job then you did another six-month job and if you you know it was in the same region that was fine there was an awful lot of mucking about and it, rotations came in when I was midway through my registrar training. Was there anyone in particular that sort of drove you to doing orthopedics or was it just a specialty as a whole? And obviously then you went to do a fellowship out in Australia in Sydney. What sort of made you decide on the subspecialty of limb reconstruction and, and pediatric orthopedics? Uh, surgery was mine. Uh, uh, orthopedics was mine because it just looked like the thing I wanted to do. But for quite a while I was... Um, very interested in knee surgery. I did a, a high degree in knee biomechanics and I was set to be uh, some sort of knee surgeon. Um, then there were two people who influenced me uh, hugely. And Charles Glasgow was a professor of orthopedics in Manchester, also a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. And John Day, who um, was a consultant in the Children's Hospital in Manchester. And for very different reasons than being very different people, they, they, influenced me to do pediatrics in general but also limb reconstruction john was a, 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 a big ilizarov user very early on and that was something that uh, i was very interested in i remember uh, there was another guy dave marsh who became he was a prof in um in belfast and in in london and and i remember he started doing the ilizarov service in manchester and i remember seeing one of these things and i remember no i have no idea what this 
how this works, but I know that this is a beautiful thing and I want to understand it. And it was a sort of one of a several epiphanies that, that, that was Dave, John Day, uh, Charles Glasgow really encouraged me into uh, pediatrics in general. Um, and so they were my influences. Um, I went to Sydney for a year to do uh, a fellowship. Uh, it was a fantastic experience, both, you know, socially we were together as a family we had a young family we were together for the year um and practically it was it was fantastic and also it sort of gave me i suppose some credentials as a pediatric orthopedic surgeon where i was sort of a little bit of a nomad at the time having done knee surgery then done about a year in a bit of peds then a year straight fellowship that's more at that point than most people had done and so when i was looking for consultant jobs that 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 influenced my next few choices so what was supposed to happen was I was supposed to go back to the Northwest and do a combined um, general paediatric practice with a bit of uh, adult knees. But I took a job in, in London in Stanmore, Great Ormond Street, because that was pure paediatrics, which at that point I made a decision. I just want to do the whole thing with peds, no distractions of adult practice. Yeah. And I, I, you know, and that's something obviously we want to speak to you, you know, you, you went out to Australia and, and from what it sounds like you, you knew you wanted orthopedics, you, you did your rotations in, in the Manchester region and then you did a fellowship, which is pretty typical of what training is like now. Uh, but how was it different for both better and for worse compared to what you had? Because, you know, now we have to do specific rotations. We're not allowed to sit at the exam until a certain stage. But was that, is that the right way or should it be that you decide, you know, this is what I want to do, a lot like the American system, and you just really go for it and, and specialise early? I think it's, it's, it's a mistake to try and make out that it's better or worse. It's different. It has upsides and downsides. You know, uh, the things I'll tell you about. I, I remember about when my middle daughter was about a couple of weeks old, I think, I had a phone call telling me that I wasn't going to where I thought I was going, which would be quite an easy drive. I was going to a part of a rotation, which meant that I had to stay overnight in hospital. Uh, you know, it was, it was a complete, you know, it wasn't for discussion. It was, that's what was going to happen. Fair enough. So we just made a decision on the spot. Okay. I'll move up there. And in a couple of weeks time, you come and join me. And you know that's the way it was. It turned out fantastically because again, we, you know, we, we were able to spend time together as a young family. I could stay in my own bed on call. It, it actually had loads of advantages, but we, you just had to be nimble. You know, it was not for discussion. You had to get on with it. Uh, and it was unpredictable. Now, now you can, you can probably, as a year one trainee, you can probably tell me where you're going to be for the next four or five years. So you can start planning, which is a huge advantage. But it was manageable. It, it doesn't, I don't look back on it as a bad thing. Uh, it was probably interesting at the time. But um, I think the thing about choosing early is you have to make the right choice. And if you get on the wrong road, it's very difficult to get off it. Uh, where the way I trained, I, I saw a lot of different sorts of surgery. You know, we sort of danced around different specialties. We got a look at different ways of doing things, and you could make quite a well-informed decision at quite a young age about what 
surgical practice you wanted to um, pursue. Now you, now you get 20 minutes of this, half an hour of that, and you've got to make a life choice on it. I think that's tough. What I see is that most people make pretty good choices because they probably were, you know, in some ways like me, that they, they, they knew pretty much what they wanted to do. They just had to put some detail on it. But I think it's, it's very tough if you find out three or four years into a, a, a training program that you're, you're, you know, you're in the wrong queue. That is, that is tough. Now, let's go back. You, you obviously finished off in Australia and you were appointed to Great Ormond Street, which you know, um, a lot of international listeners would have heard of the institution as well. It's, it's like going directly to the mothership of, of paediatric uh, tertiary. No, 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 that's Bristol. <laughs> and we're going to come to that. So tell me what your experience was. This is the pre-mothership. <laughs> tell me what your experience was at Great Ormond Street. How was it working there? It was fantastic. I had, it was just fantastic. The, I two different parts of my working week. One was at the Royal National and one was at Great Ormond Street. And it was, it was the way I describe it is half the week I was like a paediatrician who did operations and the other half I was an orthopedic surgeon who looked after children. And, you know, that, the, the, there was a quite different practice. In, in Great Ormond Street, there was really some very esoteric conditions there were things that sometimes you just you know you, you couldn't look it up because it hadn't been described and it, it just allowed you to to make decisions based on very very minimal or no information it made you a very good thinker a very good strategist and then the other side of it would be in stanmore which is the second part of the back end of the week i'd be doing you know uh, big operations uh, a lot of limb recon and yeah, that was the technical side of things. So I, I had a, a very, very, I, I still regard it as being an extended fellowship. <laughs> the first part of the week I'd have, you know, I, I'd, I'd be talking to people like, um, you know, John Fixon, David Jones, Rob Hill, they'd be taking me through stuff as a, as a new consultant, they'd be supporting me. And the second part of the week, I'd be working with Deborah Eastwood, Arishna Chad, Tony Cattrall, you know, and you know, he was around, Tony was around for five years and he was a, Again, it was like it was like being on fellowship for five years or so. It was, and I think that it allowed me to, I think, develop very quickly, yeah, out of necessity and out of opportunity. Um, and it really it defined the practice I had for the next fifteen years, twenty years. I don't know. That's a sort of a bit of a, a slushy answer to your question, but I think it's sort of it's what I think. While you while you were in that post, you were also the ABC Travelling Fellow in, yeah. in two thousand. What was that experience like? Where did you go to, uh, and and how was it? Uh, we had our twenty year anniversary last year, and I'm still smiling about it. I sometimes look at the on a dark day, I'll still look at the pictures and and just smile. It was, it, it was first of all, I, and I'm not being bashful. I think I still don't know why I was selected. Um, you know what particular characteristics they wanted. But it was it was professionally and socially it was it was an unbelievable opportunity, and you know, I went for I think I can't remember the I used to be able to trot off the figures and it was you know it was six or seven weeks in centres in the US and Canada and meeting all the greats and the good of the time, but it, that was the daytime in the night time you know it's just like you know you get a car turn up for you turn up in a dinner seat you'd be taken out to dinner. 
and within about a month, you know, you, you'd be you'd be flicking your fingers, you know, asking for people to bring you stuff. It had been like being treated like a celebrity, and it was it was astonishing, and I still smile about it. Um, I think it uh, it allowed me to meet people who I became friends with for yeah since then. I still am in contact with the people I was travelling with, in, you know, particularly uh, two of the with the Australian and the New Zealand travellers. You know, um, and and you know the locals uh, I still I still see and I love seeing them. I would recommend it to anyone. I, 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 they asked us about four or five weeks into it. Did we think it was too short or too long? And I just was asking for ways to extend it. It was an opportunity which was, was phenomenal. You know, again that's a little bit of an excited an excited answer for you. But uh, I hope it, it puts some. It doesn't answer your question, but it. it, it it, it, it just it tells you what, what I what I saw. Well, it definitely does. And, you know, I've done I did a very brief traveling fellowship, and even in that time, I made so many contacts from around the world who I can now, and especially with modern communication, we can yeah. WhatsApp each other and you know Zoom each other and, and meet and 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 share ideas and discuss cases. And it's amazing the sort of relationships you build in even just a few days uh, visiting a, a center on the other I, side. I still had a carousel of slides in my bag for that trip twenty years ago. It was quite funny, really. Now, obviously, you left Great Ormond Street and you went to Bristol. Yep. Why did why did and you Stanmore, and Stanmore? Don't yeah, I had two, two there. They're both <laughs> equally important to me. So, t- tell me, why did you leave that job in London between Great Ormond Street and Stanmore, especially with someone who's a Spurs fan and, yeah. <laughs> and has uh, uh, White Hart Lane down the road to going uh, to across to Bristol? And it, it depends what answer you want. Um, there's, a, there's a combination of factors that, that just uh, arrived at the same time. Now, the thing that I would caution anyone against is working in two places. Um, because although it's great fun and I got a lot out of it, there was an awful lot of traveling. And yeah, I was just, we, we lived out, we chose to live, we lived in Hertfordshire. So I had a train journey in. And then um, you know, it could take any number of hours per week to just travel. And I was just by eight, seven, eight years, that was getting tiring. So I thought that at some point I'd have to give one or the other up. And I just couldn't make that decision. I, I love different things about both places that made it really difficult. And I had you know pals in Bristol who I'd been seeing for I'd been coming down to courses. I'd known them for, for an awful long time. And that they, they were looking to recruit someone to do a bit of, bit of kids' limb reconstruction. And so it, that presented an opportunity to actually not have to answer the difficult problem of which to give up. Um, it would solve the commuting problem. And I was going to, you know, to work with people who I, I'd known for a long time. I really rated them as, as as colleagues or potential colleagues and that was that's the guts of it and and that's how it worked out um i it gave me opportunities i probably would have struggled to um find in in london simply because of the geography and tell me you mentioned briefly there about how this job in bristol had sort of pediatric limb reconstruction mm-hmm. um you've been there now for what nearly 16 70 years tell mm-hmm. me what has your clinical practice really entailed over that period of time. I know, know you've been involved with sort of septicemic patients and you've also managed to find time to do lots of other things, but we'll, we'll get to all that. Well, I think that it was the 
things I learned in, in GOS was the management of, of the multidisciplinary management of patients with rare conditions. So that was one thing I wanted to take with me. The thing I learned in Stanmore was the technical side of um, limb recon by whatever means. And also I had quite a big cerebral palsy practice at the time as well. Now, the one thing that was missing was trauma, which was going to be a new thing, which I always, one thing I didn't, never felt comfortable about in London was not having an acute trauma practice, because that's something I always loved doing. But it was one of the prices of, of, of taking the London spot. And so how did that pan out? Well, so I, I had the opportunity to say no, because as a new consultant, you say yes to everything. And you, you, what you say yes to in the first three months of your consultant appointment, you spend the next five years trying to ditch because they're not for you. But you, you don't want to turn up and look like you're lazy. You don't want to turn up and, 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 and let the side down. So, you know, you say yes to absolutely everything. So I kind of, I'd learned that. And so when I went to Bristol, I had the confidence and, and now to say no to most things, apart from the things I actually wanted to pursue. Sounds a bit selfish, but I'm very comfortable with that. Um, so I set up specialist clinics in a number of different things. And in fact, now there's been you know, nine or 10 of them in a variety of things like uh, skeletal, well, skeletal dysplasia service, Martin Gargan and Peter Witherow have set that up all running that. I just bolted onto that. But things like um, uh, the meningococcal septicemia survivors practice, uh, we've got a specialist clinic for um, neurofibromatosis for vascular malformations, etc., etc. You know, uh, uh, pediatric pain. You know, we just so there's no business plan. It's just you find there's a group of patients that need actually more than you can provide in a regular outpatient slot. So you just team up with your people you like working with. You sit in a room, patients arrive, and within a couple of years, it's a multidisciplinary clinic. And we've done it so many times, I can't, I can't count them. And it is a bit cynical, and it would drive uh, someone in who's trying to run a hospital mad, but they all um, count as patients. They all get the money they're due. Uh, it's just, you don't have to go through the making a case for it when you know it already exists. So I sort of, I, I go for the um, absolution rather than permission route and it's it's been quite successful because these clinics actually are well subscribed uh, they're, they're 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 mature and on, ongoing and 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 that that was something I, I was very keen to do when I came down now the limb recon side of things I joined a practice through a, through a, at the time there were three adult limb recon surgeons and I was the pediatric side of that so it allowed us again to to discuss difficult paediatric limb reconstruction cases, adult cases, do combined operating, just, and I suppose it allowed me to develop a limb reconstruction practice that I wouldn't have had if I was isolated because I wouldn't have had the nerve to do it. Mm -hmm. And so those two things were, were I think, a, a big advantage for me moving. And that was the reason that I, I moved. Uh, it also allowed me to do trauma again, mm -hmm. and which is something I still love doing. And I will come to it, I suppose, in a minute because I'm now, uh, retired and returned, but the only thing I've returned to do is paediatric trauma. Mm -hmm. So the last thing to go was peds trauma. The things that I had to let go because yeah, <laughs> I was surrounded by younger and more gifted colleagues who could do a much better job. So one by one, I, I offloaded things like 
DDH practice, Talapi's practice. You know, I haven't looked after um, patients with general pediatric orthopedic conditions for some time because we've got a big group down here now and it's just... Uh, you know, we're all great believers in in doing it. You know, uh, give it up, or you know, sorry, take it up or give it up. And so things had to go. So I've I've, I've become more and more polarised as the years have gone by. And I've got now got. If you were talking to me last year when it, before I retired, it would be a quite esoteric, very very specific practice looking after unusual paediatric conditions but with, I hope, some experience. And now, as this sort of senior member of the faculty in your current position, what do oh, you... No, that's not true either. Martin Gargan's six months older than me. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let him forget it. <laughs> but what, what do you see as your role now in the department? I think my role is to, is to do stuff that allows my younger colleagues to expand their role in the way that I was able to when I was in their position. And so the... What we've done is we've agreed to do the fracture clinics, the trauma lists, the hot clinics and the on-call because that creates space for my colleagues to develop their practice in a way that if they were having to do more trauma, they'd be able to do less elective. It's not, it's not utopian, but that's the idea. Obviously, you know, reflecting back on your career, and, and this is for me coming as a sort of young consultant in the field. Yeah, don't rub it in. <laughs> how do you how how do you manage with uh complications when things don't go right because it's something that we really take on especially in your first few years you hold yourself accountable it's a cause of massive amount of stress sleepless nights and you know some people don't have a a, a local colleague like yourself to sort of uh go to with that but how, how would you recommend that people manage their uh, complications and the reaction to it you see, I'm in great shape because I've got a group of people who I trust and can ask them about anything and they will assist me without, you know, without hesitation and allows you to not have to carry, you know, difficult complications because they are, they, 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 they are draining and, you know, you get a, a complication it, it should feel like a kick in the guts because it's you know it's it's not good you know it's 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 part of the story but it's if you think oh well that's just the way it goes you, you, you're not I don't think you're doing it right um, my answer to you is I don't think you should look after your own complications major ones I think someone else should at least be part of it because you are not able to be completely objectively involved in the decision making if you've caused it and so this i've taken a couple of more decades to, to figure out is that probably the worst patient worst person to look after a big complication is the person who's caused it and so what i try and do is if i've got a complication i get advice immediately because it makes it immediately lifts what you describe you know the the the, 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 the sleepless nights the that visceral awfulness about about a big bad complication and i take them all as they're all personal i take them all personally you know it's it's just they're not it's part of surgical practice but it's you know you we all try very hard to to, to not have them but they will come the other thing i do is a kind of you know because i'm you know old now is is you just notice stuff and if someone's had a complication most of us are 
tough enough emotionally and professionally to deal with them. If you get two complications in close proximity, you know, most of us are still okay to deal with that, but it does rock you. It's the third that takes you down. And I sort of, if, if, if people have just had a bad run, I'm looking out for that. If someone's had a, you know, that sort of run, it's the third, it's, it's like a box set. It's the third punch will take you down, no matter how strong your chin is. No, that's really helpful. No, that's not always the case, though. Let's, let's, let's move on to, uh, to research. Obviously, you know, you're not, even though you're largely a limb reconstruction surgeon, you published on all sorts of different things, you know, medial open reductions, uh, and you've also managed to fit in a PhD, evaluating the effect of chemotherapy on regenerative bone. What, what led you to doing that? I'm not an academic orthopedic surgeon. You know, the, the, that, that in contemporary um, practice has got a completely different spin. So I'm just a hot, yeah, I'm a stamp collector. The PhD was the most selfish act I think I've perpetrated in my whole adult life, and I'm delighted about it. It was an opportunity to do some decent lab-based research at a time that, well, I knew I would never get the opportunity again, but equally I knew that I would not be able to finish it um, in any sort of sensible time. So I, I, it was a really strategic piece of 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 of, uh, of trickery and uh, so i did the basic science work uh on fellowship now when i was coming back you know most people were getting off a plane from sydney with you know with beach balls and surfboards i had two suitcases that were full of x-rays histology slides the whole deal well actually that was hand luggage because i i wouldn't i was so paranoid about losing it i wouldn't even let it go to the hold so that's what i carried back and then I spent the next, I knew that I wouldn't be able to get it. The best advice I got that didn't take was from Ian Barrett, who's one of the senior guys in Sydney. He said, you have to get this written up before you leave it or you'll never do it. And he was almost right. And you know, if you, if you want to get stuff written up, you've got to do it while it's in front of you. Because otherwise life takes over. I registered uh, at UCL for a, uh, for a, an MPhil at the time. And then knowing that I, I'd be able to transfer it, if I did enough to transfer it for PhD, I'd have to do a conversion vibe and then do a PhD and get some more time. And the whole time looked about right. And it was. And I got it in with about six months to spare, about 11 years after I did the work. But I think it was some part of me that wanted... I, 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 wanted, I wanted to do a decent bit of sit-down proper inverted commas research that i could be proud of and that's exactly what i got yeah. no, I, and you know i love what you say about you know the research and how you sort of collect stamps and actually that brings to mind like actually one of my favorite pieces that you've written which was the article called a prejudicial view yeah. but you explored this whole area of uh, heuristics which to be honest i've never really uh read much about or know much about and it was a real eye-opener for me and we'll put a copy of it in the show notes okay yeah that the, 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 there's two books that are referenced in there that are absolute belters if you you know it, it, it really um it, it tarnished gold is one of them i mean there's they're, they're just great books about about sort of about it's an alternative way of looking at research in medicine and for those who obviously don't know what heuristic actually means, because to be fair, I, I didn't know when I, before I read it. It's the way of easing the cognitive load of making a decision and not aiming for uh, perfection, but something that's 
sufficient and suitable and is probably very applicable in limb reconstruction and, and pediatrics it's a, so it's a broad brush approach yeah. you know using limited but sensible information to make decisions let's move on to education because that's something i really want to speak about in fact one of my very earliest memories of being an orthopedic trainee was seeing you speak at the RSM trauma symposium uh, and I just realized how, how uh, you put up a slide of uh, a barbarian and and a man in a top hat and saying well you have to figure out when to be which. No, uh, Attila the Hun, Attila the Hun and Dr. Mop. There we go and um, you know but you, you collect you're a clinical senior lecturer at the University of Bristol, you're the educational chair of BISCOS and you also sit on the BOA council. Tell me what is it that drove you into being such a powerhouse when it comes to educating trainees and colleagues in, in your field? And, and you can't deny you haven't because your video uh, on managing supracondylar fractures and being assisted with the BOSE guidelines and you know, just being educational chair of BISCOS is, is enough accolades for me to, to say that, you know, that is the role that I see you playing. Well, I mean, I, it's, a, it's the thing I enjoy the most apart from clinical medicine, is teaching stuff. Um, and it is part selfish because yeah, it's a feel-good factor. If you, you can teach people and you know, they go away with stuff they didn't know before, it makes you feel good about yourself. And you know, we're, all, we're all self-driven, self-motivated and self-interested. Um, I hate seeing it done badly. And some of the things that I have learned in my career is how what things look like when they're being done badly and teaching being one of them I, uh, one of the things that breaks my heart is seeing medical students being paraded around an operating room where they're uncomfortable having to listen to arcane stories by boring old gits like me when they should be doing other stuff and we call that surgical teaching and it's nonsense and what i I, I suppose it's watching, I, I've got adult kids now, so I suppose watching them grow up and talking to them about, you know, I'd, you forget, in your 20s and 30s, you forget what it was like when you're 15, you know, because it's, but I was sort of revisiting that through them and thinking, Christ, we're wasting an awful lot of time for these, particularly undergraduates, they become postgraduates later. But the undergrads, I thought we, you know, they were, we were really not doing them any favours because the teaching we provided was was pretty rudimentary. And so what I wanted to do was, I suppose, basically not waste their time, is to give them an efficient way of picking up what they needed to know in an environment that they didn't find, find uncomfortable. And so for the last 15 years, I've been trying to, to, to do that, you know, successful in some areas, unsuccessful in others. But that's what it's about. It's, to, it's, it's feeling very uncomfortable about wasting these magnificent people's time uh, and then that translates into into surgical teaching for trainees now because it's again it's it's recognizing it's not better or worse it's different they've got a different set of obstacles you you've done it They're a different set of obstacles to contend with to get to where they want to go and it just drives me nuts people of my vintage so sort of say, oh, they are they're lazy, they're, they are, they don't, they're not the same, they're not as tough as they were, and, 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 when in fact they're just dealing with a completely different set of problems. And so it's trying to give them the equipment they need to deal with those problems, but without properly understanding it. So what I do is I, I 
talk to them. And the other big thing I learned over years is you learn, I think you learn just as much from idiots as you do from geniuses. You know, you, I learned, I remember, not for this kind of broadcast, but there are certain things I do now because I swore to myself that when I was in a position of, of influence, I would absolutely not do that. And I think there's, you know, there's, there's you've just got to be awake and interested, half interested even. Well, look, you know, you, you've always sort of, you've been very supportive of this platform and, and also of sort of novel mediums of educating, you know, medical students and trainees. I know you've been working on a sort of series of videos. T- tell us a bit about that and how you hope that's going to... Well, what, well the, the one we're doing at the moment is, is, is again, because COVID, the, everyone's quite rightly worried about trainees, about, about people who are you know, on fellowship, we're not getting anything. But again, the, 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 the group who really are getting left behind are the med students. What we've done is we've created a trauma meeting for medical students it's called it's a virtual trauma meeting we do it on a tuesday night at eight o'clock every couple of weeks and we do it on zoom and we've got you know 20 plus undergrads we've got uh, two of our trainees and one of my consultant colleagues just doing a trauma meeting but not the flash stuff but explaining things in understandable terminology and detail and i let me tell you it's very very funny to watch people who think they know a subject trying to explain it to someone without using all the nonsense that we use you know all the all the all the all the smokescreen terms and the classifications and that when actually all i want them to to do is to explain the basics of what the problem is and what the potential solutions are and so we've been doing that for a few months now and it's going pretty well and um we'll probably continue after covid but not on Zoom, probably in a room somewhere. Um, I think they like it as well because it demystifies it. The other thing I think as well I feel pretty strongly about is, is I think we probably do ourselves no favours. There's a recruitment problem in surgery, in general orthopaedics in particular, and we probably scare away any number of people who could be heart-hitting orthopaedic surgeons if they actually were given encouragement and opportunity. Some people will never even consider orthopedics because of what they see in front of them. And so one of the things I try and do is, is I can't do it because I'm a stereotype. I am that stereotype. So so, so try and sort of empower other people to kind of uh, encourage non-conventional orthopedic types into orthopedics because I think we need it. It's just a personal view. It's, it's, It's a bit contentious, but it's becoming more mainstream. This is a perfect segue when you talk about empowering people is a topic I really want to talk about, which is about your involvement with the Children's Surgical Centre in Phnom Penh in Cambodia. You know, I, I, know, I know a lot about it. I've heard you talk about it. In, tell us a bit about it and how you started getting involved in it. That was another accident. And I've just got to put you right on that. because I, 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 don't, I haven't been there for a few years. I will go back there, but it's just, you know, things have got in the way. Um, we still support it. I'll come back to that. Now, what happened was it's another one of those accidents. Is one of my friends, colleagues, then trainees, Jim Ed, was out there. He was doing a, uh, uh, I think he was out for a year doing a, 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 a self-organised fellowship in in a, this hospital in Cambodia. And yeah, I didn't know anything about it. And he phoned me up one day, and he had a couple of, well, more than a couple, he had a few kids with very, very difficult lower limb deformities which would 
where we are would have been well managed with a fixator, with a circular fixator. And bearing in mind that that device or that type of device was actually designed for a low tech, low income environment, which is, you know, post Second World War Russia. It was, he said, look, you've got to come out and show these people how to do this. And I said, well, well fair, enough, fair enough. So I sort of basically got on a plane and went out to Phnom Penh. They had the gear there and, and I showed them how to put some foot frames on. Now, what broke my heart is it took me 20 years to learn how to do it, you know, not badly. It took them about three months to learn how to do it perfectly. And so they're doing, they're doing them in numbers. They picked it up so quickly. They're, you know, they're great surgeons. Um, and we, I did some of the other pediatric stuff, did a lot of consulting. What I've always been nervous about is pitching up at a hospital far away and doing stuff and thinking how wonderful you are and then going home and never seeing the misery that you leave behind. But this, and, and I'd done some before and I'd sort of made a pact with myself, so I'm never gonna do that again. You're just doing harm. But, but this was different because they didn't need me to be there operating. They had a very, very good um, setup. It was, it's run by a, a magnificent bloke called Jim Gologli. And, and he runs it, he's got, you know, it's staffed by Khmer surgeons. And if I go and help, it's nothing more than that. It's just adding a couple of pairs of hands. If I didn't turn up, they'd still get on with the work. It just, it just allows them to do a few more cases. So it's not like going there, doing cases and scarpering. It's just adding to the, the, the well-established surgical workload load of that unit. But it was great fun going. But what I think we did, which was more useful to them, was we set up uh, a, a, a teleconference thing between them, between CSC Phnom Penh and Bristol Kids. And so we, we do it, it's on a Wednesday morning, which is lunchtime, uh, Cambodia time. And we just do cases. They show us cases that they're having some difficulty with. They want some advice about, and we just give them practical advice. But the deal is that, that, that then we, are, we all show them cases as well. And they'll, you know, so it's two way traffic. It's not just us teaching them how to do stuff. It's sharing information because what I learned when I was there is, is that, that they are absolutely world-class at some things that we really struggle with, you know, and, and they just do it routinely because they see so many, you know, things like neglected lateral condyle fractures, neglected posterior hip dislocations, you know, infection, et cetera, et cetera. They, they just do it routinely and it, we, we really sort of get into a sweat about it. Whereas they struggle with things that we regard as being pretty straightforward. So if you share that, each side of the, the, um, the, the conference gets something out of it. And so we, we continue to do that. And I think it's, it's, it's probably useful. Yeah, and it's obviously just like you said, it's a lot about what we can learn from them as and, yeah. and what they from us. And I spoke to Sarah and James, who are two oh, yeah. Liverpool who have just recently been there. And you know, they they said, you know, it is literally the FRCS dream. You get to see yeah. all sorts of pathology. And um and as you said, you know, to not go there making sure that we're we're coming in as saviors. You know, you're only as good as your last case yeah. and it needs to be clinically appropriate. But what they really both credited you for was your sort of pragmatic and adaptable to gauge what is realistically achievable in these low income settings. And, you know, uh, I, I know quite a few trainees have been out there now. Is there a specific fellowship that that is? And how can uh, yeah, Kaduri know? fellowship? It's, it's, it's a funded fellowship by the Kaduri foundation uh, and it will pay, it pays uh, travel. It pays a salary 
and it pays accommodation. Um, it's, it's available. I mean, it's the people who, I think Keith Willett still runs it from Oxford, Bob Handley from Oxford. Uh, I've been involved in some of the organisation as well. And um, if, if anyone is interested, if they contact me, I'll put them in touch with the people who, who they need to. The, the other thing is, is um, anyone who goes out there, I take over as their, their, their supervisor. So what I do is I do, um, you know, CBDs and all that stuff online while that's so it, so it has got a, 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 a credibility when they come back. And I've done that for, you know, for a number of people for a long time. Um, just taking care of them, you know, it's a long, it's a long way to go. Uh, uh, and you just need someone on the end of a phone who, or one of these things now, who, who can just talk you through, whatever you, you, is in front of you. Now, that's why having visited it makes it easier for me to do it because I've got context. So I think I've benefited from being, from visiting and doing cases out there um, in that I know a bit about, about how the place works, what's available, what isn't available. And, and, and again, some of the politics of, of, of what is sensible and what isn't sensible. Yeah. For anyone that hasn't sort of seen it, you know, uh, you wrote you wrote an article a few years ago about it, and it has that typical picture of the four table operating table oh, yeah. theatre. So, um, and hopefully, I'll get to visit one day as well. So, you, you know, thanks for it's, talking. It's a great place, and and it. it I tell you the other thing that I, why I love why I love going, is because for at least three months after I come back, I stop whinging. You know, it's because you know they get on. It's a country that's got a very interesting history modern history last 50 year history um and you know just going back to work after spending a, a while some somewhere like that you know, cracking we've really got we've got a, a lot of opportunities here uh, and we've got very little to whinge about so that sorts me out for about three months after three months i'm back to you know full-time whinging again so it's all right so tell me, uh, seeing as we're sort of winding up, what stops you from whinging now on a daily basis? How do, how do you relax? What are your other interests? I know you have, you have family with three kids. I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure you've grown up now. T tell me about how you relax because you're so busy. I mean, we've both been on Zoom most of today in lots of different meetings. What, what do you enjoy to you know, get a decent work-life balance? Um, I've, been, I've always been rubbish at work-life balance. You know, you know I've... I've uh, spent too much time in the office, but it's because I love doing it. So I suppose, you know, that's a, an excuse. Um, I, I've got this terrible thing. I love watching sport and I love watching soccer. And I'm a massive Spurs fan. And that probably has caused me more misery in the last 50 years than anything else I can imagine. It's, it's quite an extraordinary affliction. It's, it's a, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's not a football thing. It's a Spurs thing. Because real Spurs supporters are are perennially miserable. They've always got this kind of hope and then they, they just fall for it. And you know, you can, I can live with the, the disappointment. It's the hope that's killing me. Anyway, that's it. So I, I, I like that. Um, I like, I, I do stuff, I like reading stuff. I like looking at pictures, uh, you know, art and stuff. I've got a particular niche uh, that I have over a long period of time just like looking at, you know, the, the Northern Renaissance. The reason I do that is, and I'll tell you, I wrote about this. The reason I do that is because when I started, I knew, I didn't know which way up most of these things went when I started in London. I had no idea. And it certainly wasn't something that interested me. But the summer of 97, I think, was really hot. And I was living away from home. And 
you know, evenings I was sort of sitting there and, and, and I just wanted to go and do something. Anyway, there was this place in London that had really, really, really good air conditioning. And so I used to go there and just because it was a nice place to cool off. And there's all these pictures hanging on the wall as well. And, you know, I went back a few times and then uh, I sort of got, got familiar with a couple of these. It's called the National Gallery, by the way. And so I used to look around and then I thought, well, actually, this is really kind of, some of these things, like, you know, I could walk past pictures of bowls of oranges and uh, all day, but there's certain things that just captivate me. The other thing I used to do at that time is the British Museum was around the corner from Great Ormond Street. So I, I became a bit, a bit, of, a, a bit of a know-all about, about Mesopotamia. It's stuff like that. I used to go there, I suppose, because I, it was it was something that was I needed something that was completely non-medical, and so I just found that, and it became an interest. So, not, not much more than that. I'm I'm pretty boring, really. <laughs> and, I like uh, watching telly. I like watching. I like watching telly. Well, last for, time we caught up, you were about, we were about to catch the space launch together. So, I, oh no, that's another thing that I absolutely nuts about is is all that stuff. You know, is I spent nearly three days reliving, well, not five days reliving Apollo eleven and Apollo thirteen. They did a real time thing from NASA. And so for five days, I, on a, on a minute by minute way, followed both those spacings. I remember doing that as a kid. It hasn't left me. <laughs> well, you know, you, you, you have said before that, you know, there's a component of art as well as science in our practice. And I think that's obviously been reflected in your sort of personal interests as well. Well, look, I want to take this opportunity to thank you. I know we've probably gone a little bit over uh, than our allotted time, but um, thanks so much for sitting with me. And, you know, you really have been uh, an inspiration to me at, from the very early days meeting you in the RSM and then being such an approachable person uh, you know at Biscos and at other meetings and even when we meet face to face it's always a joy to be with you and it's been a great time talking to you thank you again well all I would say to you is pass it on certainly will then you're welcome <laughs> guys I really hope you enjoyed the episode Mr. Fergal Monsall I'm really sorry if we went slightly over our lot of time but hopefully you've stuck with us to the end I truly hope as the host of this podcast that you've enjoyed the content we put out over the past year. Uh, We will continue to bring you amazing guests from around the world to discuss their careers in paediatric orthopedics. Please don't hesitate to reach out to me on LinkedIn, Twitter or Instagram. I hope you all have a fantastic festive period. Uh, with your families and friends. It's been a tough year for all of us and hopefully 2021 uh, holds great things. I'll see you in the new year.